Thank you all. So, hey, I know uh, we got kids who are leaving for camp today, and so my goal is to be done right at the top of the hour. And uh, so with that, we're going to dive in. Let me start this morning uh, by asking you just to take a moment uh, before the Lord and and recognize in our lives that, man, we're moving forward, doing great things. And all of a sudden we have resistance. Right. Dwayne just so uh, eloquently said headwinds. Right. That really define some of the things we're going after, the things that we're doing. So I want to invite you to take about 30 seconds right now before the Lord. So just close your eyes where you are, kind of similar to what Sarah said a second ago, kind of putting our hands before the Lord, quieting ourselves in this moment. And I just want to invite you to um, to ask this question. Lord, where are you taking me? Where is there resistance? And what are you asking me to do? Lord, where are we going? Where am I experiencing resistance? And what do you need me to do? So let's have an honest moment before the Lord about where we are as we come in this morning. Now, Father, I pray this in this moment of being still before you, God, that you would continue to quiet our hearts and our minds to hear your voice and to keep in step with your spirit today. Those who need breakthrough, Lord, this morning we're asking this to be part of the breakthrough that you're bringing for them in Jesus' name. Amen. So now as we talk about uh, kind of as we talk about life today, I want you to recognize that um, that we live in the context of a place of life where resistance is a primary part of what we face, honestly, on every, sometimes every day, but definitely on an, on an every week uh, basis. That there are things that pop up in the context of our life that produce uh, resistance. And so when we talk about this upcoming week, we're talking about our youth. And, and honestly, looking back to last week, we said last week, hey, man, we're anticipating and expecting God's movement in the context of our lives. And so we said to you, take some time this week and go after. What does it look like, God, to anticipate and to expect your movement, right? We talked about these four things right here, areas of anticipated and expected forward momentum from last week as the supernatural movement of God's spirit. We talked about expectation of the spiritual family and kind of walking in unity together, sacrificing, giving of ourselves, one another. Talk about anticipating, expecting a forward momentum in the area of, of influencing our community. That we, man, that God's doing such great things. That we have influence and uh, in the context of where we live and forth, people giving their lives to Jesus. And so we said, man, this is what we're anticipating and expecting. And so what, what I want to say this morning is that we're anticipating and expecting this week for God to do these things in the lives of our kids, of our youth, right? That there is this expectation of God's conviction, God's movement, this breakthrough in their life. We're anticipating, expecting stories to be told. And so in the lives of your youth and the lives of your children, we expect them to come back and say, we've made this commitment to Jesus and we're following him in this way, right? And we come back and we celebrate and we tell those stories much like we did a couple Sundays ago in the context of our children, of our, of our children coming home from their, their retreat that they took with Kidventure, right? And so, so you have this whole thing going on 
of, of anticipating and expecting God's movement. And we celebrate the momentum. And we understand momentum. Momentum represents forward movement. So we're anticipating and expecting God to bring about this momentum. But at the same time, I'm also anticipating and I'm expecting for there to be resistance. Because I don't know about, I don't know about you, but in the context of life, I recognize that wherever there is momentum, there's always some level of resistance. In fact, we all experience resistance this morning coming to church. I know that because you drove a car. And in the context of driving a car, you have momentum. Now, what happens? You need to stop, so you put on your brakes. And your brakes produce a resistance that allow you to stop. We all understand how resistance works. It's a it's innate part of our lives. We understand it in the context of our personal lives. You go over to to dinner with your family and you're anticipating and hoping and expecting to have a nice, relaxing time of connecting with your spouse and connecting with your children and having a great time. And all of a sudden there's a meltdown. A resistance to your peace and your tranquility in the context of your, your dinner out together, right? Or maybe a lot of you have been going to the beach. Have you already gone to the beach once this summer, right? Some of you just raise your hand loud. It's really, really, really proud, right? You've raised your hand because you've gone to the beach. And so you go to the beach and what happens? Man, you have an anticipation and expectation of taking out your chair, taking out your cooler, taking out your book, take, taking out your skim board, your boogie board, whatever it may be, right? You're taking everything out because you're going to have a great time by God. When you go to the beach and so you sit there, right? And all and you're sitting there enjoying yourself, the waves are coming in, it's exactly what you anticipated, and all of a sudden it's like this cloud of people start walking to the beach and they all and you're like, Where are they gonna go? Where are they gonna sit? And they all of a sudden they look around and they look right here in front of you, and all this obnoxious family comes and puts all their stuff right here in front of you, impeding the flow of your joy, of your satisfaction at the beach. And all of a sudden, this momentum of joy is replaced by a resistance of thought of thinking about how you wish they'd all get in the water and get eaten by sharks. I'm just saying, that's what happens, right? We all experience this expression of resistance in the context of our lives. And so when we experience this, it really does. Like there's momentum happening and then resistance occurs. We all understand that in the context really of everyday life and in the context of the weeks that we live. We all experience this. And we honestly, we all experience this in the context of our spiritual lives. That's what our youth are going to experience. This week is be all about like going deep with Jesus and knowing him. They're like, yeah, this is the best week ever. And then they like get home. It's like, why are things so hard all of a sudden? We experience this nature of resistance. And we all experience that in the context of our spiritual lives. We're going a specific direction. We have conviction. And all of a sudden life happens. And this forward momentum that we have, man, it's massively affected. And then we look back several months later and we say, my gosh, I was going this direction. How did I get here? And just to put us all on the same playing field, every single one of us have experienced this reality in our lives. We're going with momentum in a specific direction and resistance happens. Then we go, oh, my gosh, how did we get here? 
So last week, again, I've already defined for you these things that we looked at. And Luke was really naming those things. You can put it back on the screen over here. Like these, these things that he anticipated and he expected for us to define momentum by in the context of the church. Like this, these things defined the church in Acts chapter 5. Like this was what was going on. In fact, we would say, my gosh, these are like the golden years of the church. Like this is the moment of like, oh. This is so great. This like beautiful moment of God's movement, momentum in the context of the church. Luke is defining, saying, hey, these are the defining characteristics of the church all the way through until the, to the end of the book of Acts. And we need you to recognize this defines the church. These things define the lives of the people in the church. This is a beautiful thing. But he defines that in the context of a resistance That's about to rise up and we will see all the way then from this point all the way through to the end of the book. And here's what I want you to see in the context of the church from chapter five all the way to the end. What we find are two things at work. Number one is momentum. In the context of the church, we saw those four things. The movement of God's spirit, spiritual family, high influence in their community and people giving their lives to Jesus. Momentum. The flip side of that, we're going to be seeing all the way to the end of the book, is resistance. And so what we find then is this undeniable reality in the early church of momentum and resistance coexisting at the same time. And so one of the great tensions I find, especially in our youth who go off to camp, is like, I just wish I could live at camp all day long. I wish I could just live in the context of this mountaintop experience, right? But you find nowhere in Scripture outside of the first chapter of Genesis and the end of Revelation, nowhere out, in, nowhere in between those things do you find a time where momentum and resistance aren't coexisting. They always do. And so in that, we have to get to the place. And I find people so frustrated, like, I just wish things could be at peace all the time. And I'm like, it just doesn't work that way. Sorry. And then I find people who are like, we're never going to have peace and momentum. It's always going to be resistance. And that's not true either. The fact is we have to grow into a place of recognizing in the context of the kingdom until Jesus returns in his fullness and he has not yet. We will live in this tension between momentum and resistance and we have to learn how to live in that tension for us to thrive in the context of our lives. And I want you to put us all on the same page of recognizing that is each of our experiences. And so with that in mind, let's look this morning at resistance that crops up in the early church. Acts chapter 5. They're growing, right? They're, they're growing, they're flowing in Christ, right? Everything's going great in verse 17. Then the high priest and all of his associates, who are members of the party of the Sadducees, they were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles, they put them into the public jail, but during the night... An angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. The angel said, go stand in the temple courts and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. The church is growing. The church is flowing. Momentum is happening. Then Luke names the resistance. 
We see this called the ruling party, you see it named later, it's called the Sanhedrin, and it's made up of religious leaders of the day, Jewish religious leaders, on, and you had two different groups of them. Like for the sake of our, this for our language, this is not a perfect analogy, but just to help us, just think Baptist and Methodist are all working together on the same board together, right? You have Pharisees and you have Sadducees, and they're two different groups of people, but going after the same thing. The Pharisees by nature, are honestly a little more low-key, they're not quite as aggressive, but then you have the Sadducees. And these are the Sadducees over here, man, these are the ones, honestly, who are more hardcore and they are more ruthless. According to Josephus, he's the Jewish historian from many, many moons ago, it was the Sadducees and not the Pharisees who ultimately were responsible for the death of the Apostle James, the brother of Jesus, and all of his disciples. Here in this story, you have the Sadducees. They're the ones who are ultimately really, really frustrated. And we're told in verse 33, it says they were furious and they wanted to put them to death. They wanted to take all the apostles, all the religious leaders, all the ones who were preaching uh, in the early church, right? And they wanted to put them to death. But the Pharisees, who were led by Gamaliel, and you'll see it later on as you read, Gamaliel comes and he says, all right, listen, guys, let's not put them to death. That's a little that's a little extreme. We don't need to be doing that. Let's just watch and see, because if God is with them, then they'll succeed. And if not, then they'll fail. So let's just see what happens. Let's just see what happens. And in verse 40, it says this Gamaliel's speech, his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged, and they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then let them go. So what I want you to see is in in a real, like really palpable felt sense, there is resistance. These religious leaders, specifically the Sadducees who are hardcore and are ruthless, they're angry, and they want to put the apostles to death in the same way that they put Jesus to death. Do you see the resistance? Like in the moment, this feels to them exactly what they felt and experienced when Jesus was before the Sanhedrin and ultimately was killed for his convictions and his faith. And so the apostles are in the same moment. Just press pause. Like, can you feel that? Like, can you imagine putting yourself in their shoes and having just seen your favorite person, the one you saw was Lord, the Messiah, go through all of this? And there's like this, like, oh, my gosh, right moment. God, what's happening here? Really felt resistance. They're beaten. They're bloodied right in the moment. And so what I want you to see is the resistance is so real that literally they're flogged. Like, this is a physical thing. Like, literally, the cat of nine tails, the same whip that was used to whip Jesus that has all these strands with, like, bone and glass and stuff at the end. So when you wrap it around, right, wrap it around, it takes their skin, either scratches or just rips off flesh. It's terrible, right? They weren't just like, hey, flogged and like they were just hit. No, they were flogged. They were beaten ruthlessly in the moment. All I'm getting at is, like, there was a very real felt sense of resistance in the moment. They were growing, they were flowing, then they were bullied, beaten, and bloodied. To kind of put the weight behind it. Honestly, 
their response depends on whether or not the church makes it or not. Like this literally could have been the end of the church right here. Because they're the leaders, and there's not just one leader, there's like 12 of them, the apostles. Everyone's, everyone's following them, right? Everyone's looking up to them. And what if immediately they had responded differently, and they pulled away and said, oh my gosh, this is too hard. We can't do this. What if they had been like the spies that had gone into the promised land and said, no my gosh, there are giants in the land. We can't do this. This is too much. What if they had done that in the moment? Like, listen, yes, God's grace could have moved. God could have raised other people up. But this could have been a very, very, very difficult moment in the history of the church. Because resistance causes, listen, resistance causes a response, doesn't it? Resistance is always a crossroad moment. Resistance always wakes us up to reality going, oh my gosh, I had momentum. Now I am not momentuming forward. I made that up, right? It's not a real word. Now I'm not moving forward. What am I going to do? I have a crossroad with the resistance. I am now at the stop sign. My brakes have stopped me. What am I going to do? And the disciples find, the apostles find themselves in this moment. How do they respond to resistance? Well, let's read. It says in verse 41 and 42, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name day after day in the temple courts and from house to house. They never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Their response is amazing. And they don't, they don't listen. They don't go, this was great. I love this. No. But they, they said they, they, they celebrated the fact that they rejoiced and celebrated because, man, we've been identified with Christ and his family. We've been identified as Christ followers. We are then put in the same boat as Jesus. Just like it happened to Jesus, we've been identified as being a part of the family of Jesus. We should ask ourselves... Why did they rejoice in the resistance? Because they've been counted worthy of being, they've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. What I want you to recognize this morning is their lives, this is the key, their lives are defined primarily with their identity with Christ. They're identifying themselves as being connected to Jesus, of being part of the family of Jesus, right? Who they are in Christ and who they, and what they do. With Christ is more important than anything else. Basically, nothing in their lives, not even resistance. Listen, nothing in their lives, not even very authentic and powerful resistance was stronger than their celebration and conviction of being part of Jesus's family. They are rejoicing because the resistance shows that they are connected to Jesus. They are recognized as being part of his family. What are their next steps? They never stop teaching. They never stop teaching, proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And here's what I want you to do this morning. Putting yourself in their shoes, being honest. Remember earlier I said to you, hey, what is God calling you to? Where is your resistance and how do you need to respond? Like, what is the resistance in your life? What is the crossroad moment? What's the tension for you? How are you handling that moment? What's your response in the moment? How are you turning? Are you turning to Jesus or are you not? In the context of this, God wants to lead us to a place like the disciples that when we get to a place of resistance, 
that we handle it like they do. They never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news of Jesus. I believe this happens. I believe that our response to be like the, the apostles, it requires several things. I'm going to name three things this morning. I see this in the first five chapters of Acts. It's a much longer list. So I want to encourage you this week, write down my three things with seven blanks after it and go write seven more things that God shares with you in the context of your time. Right. What causes them in the moment of their resistance to not turn in fear, but to turn in faith? Three things I named this morning. Number one is their primary identity is found in Christ. Their primary identity, their primary definition of who they are is not their last name, but it's the name of Jesus. My place in Jesus's family must be my defining identity. I will be about what he is about. I will be about doing what he is doing. What he is living for is what I will live for. His voice will be primary. His love and affection for my in my life will be primary. His will for my life, it will be primary. What's the primary influence in your life? What's your primary affection? What's the primary thing you go after? What do you spend your primary affection and time thinking about? Where do you look for your affection? Where do you look for your satisfaction? Where do you look for fulfillment? What defines you? For the disciples, it's like, no, our identity is real simple. When we get resistance, our it's like our identity is just wrapped up in who Jesus is to us and nothing else. That's why we can continue moving forward. We live for an audience of one. We live for Jesus, not comfort, not personal gratification. We don't live for someone to think that I'm great. I just live with my identity in Christ as his family member and nothing else. And so when, when resistance occurs, I was like, well, I... Jesus, what are you doing? Jesus, what are you doing? The second thing is that our primary identity is in Christ's power. Their primary identity is in Christ's power, not their own. What do I mean by this? The disciples lived with the conviction of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the first part. It says, Jesus comes and says, listen, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Why is this important? Because Jesus recognized you're going to live life and it's not always going to be about momentum. You're going to live with resistance and you can't do resistance in your own strength. You can't do resistance. You can't handle sickness. You can't handle death. You can't handle hardship. You can't handle people saying mean things about you. You can't handle gossip about you. You can't handle any of these things in your life, in your own strength. It requires my power. So they identified themselves not in their own abilities, in their own power, but in the power of the Holy Spirit in the context of their life. So when resistance came, they immediately turned to Jesus. I can't handle that in my own own strength. I need your power. Isn't it interesting that when you were a child and something scary happened, if you had loving parents, you ran to them. Maybe your own kids, something scary happens and they run to you. And then when you got older, something scary happened, you didn't run to your parents anymore. You just tried to handle it in your own strength. 
Remember that moment that your kids when the scary happened and they didn't run to your room when lightning and thunder happened? They didn't run and jump into your bed and you're like, whoa, what just happened here? That's what we, that's our thing, right? Because they're going to they're handle it in their own strength. And Jesus is saying, hey, when resistance comes, you can't do anything in your own strength. That's why you need my Holy Spirit. You need my grace. Stop leaning into your own ability and lean into your understanding that you need grace, my power, my ability at all times. Their identity in Acts 4. Remember, they, Peter and John, before that Sanhedrin, the mean, nasty, evil guys, right? And they come back. They said they couldn't. They said, oh. And they went back to their people and they immediately ran to Jesus and said, we can't do this boldness thing in our own strength. We can't make it happen. Resistance is happening. It's too much for us. We need you, Holy Spirit. Would you fill us again? Their identity is found in Christ's power. And the third thing is primary identity in Christ's calling. At the end of the day, when they hit the resistance, they said, well, our primary, our primary identity is ultimately in Christ's calling, right? The second part of verse 6 says, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and all the way to the ends of the earth. Resistance tries to take our eyes off of where we are going, the destination before we set before us, and it causes us to be distracted and ineffective. It causes us to be distracted and ineffective in turn. We must immediately at all times say, I feel my gaze being taken off of Jesus and God. Would you give me your help? Would you help me? Would you give me your grace to set it back on you today and to go after your will, to go after your calling? I love that it says, and they were, listen, and they felt resistance, literally, physically bloodied and beaten, but they walked out and they continued to proclaim the gospel of Jesus to those who were dying and going to hell because that was the call that defined them. Not their own comfort, not their own peace, right? Not their own freedoms, but identifying with the call of Jesus. And I just wonder, what is the primary calling that you submit yourself to? Is it comfort? Oh, that's just too hard. I can't go do that. What if the disciples, listen, in this moment, you recognize every single one, I'll say every single one, some of them were married. And because they were married, some of them probably had kids. Parents and kids, listen, like their marriage and their kids weren't their primary calling. It was being obedient to the call of Jesus. Because he said, that's just too much for me. I got to, I should, my primary calling is to my wife. My primary calling is to my children. I need to choose peace in all of this so that I just continue to live my life. And that's not what they did. They all died. They all died for their faith. Because the primary calling stayed the primary calling even when it got difficult and nothing else trumped it. How do we handle that? Your life is to be marked by forward momentum in all of these areas that we named and to be marked by resistance because Jesus has yet to return in his fullness. In the context of that resistance, what do we do? And where do we find our primary identity and where do we listen and where do we follow? Because the idea is this. He wants us to live Continuing like the disciples to experience momentum, understanding that for the rest of Acts, resistance was going to be there and fruit was going to continue to occur as they identified themselves primarily with Jesus in every area of their life. And we can, too. Let's pray.
Jesus, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness. We ask this morning, Jesus, that in the context of our own resistance, that we would not lose sight of you. That, Father, we would not lose sight of who we belong to. We would not lose sight of the fact, Jesus, that you're fighting for us. We would not lose sight, God, at the, at the, at the stop sign. There's, there's a way to turn to you and, God, everything, God. In that moment, you begin to give clarity and begin to give wisdom. You, can, you begin to give peace. You begin to give uh, fulfillment and satisfaction in you. You begin to fill us with your spirit. And I just ask this morning, God, in the context of those who are really experiencing resistance today, that you would shine like the sun in darkness to say, hey, here I am. Here I am. Set your gaze on me. Recognize I'm your only and primary audience you need to worry about. And let's remember the calling that I've given you to move forward in. I pray, Jesus, today we would not lose sight of that primary calling in Christ. And then honestly, God, we would not lose sight then of also the secondary calling to, to be a good spouse. So we choose humility and love. That we choose the calling, God. We recognize the calling of being a parent. And we embrace that, God, as we embrace the identity of who we are in Christ. But I pray, God, our identity with you and all things would trump everything. And that, God, in the midst of our resistance, that you bring breakthrough. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to respond this morning. I just believe that God's probably speaking in the context of your resistance. Wanting to set your gaze upon him. Want to move your heart to bring life into places you feel like you're dying. So we're praying for breakthrough this morning. Breakthrough into the things of God for you. We have ministry teams be available on both sides. If that's you, once you go ahead and come forward to so see you and feel comfortable with you being here and ready to pray for them. We'll have communion available right here. Communion specifically. So we remember the good news of Jesus. We remember the good news of Jesus. That he came. That he died. He was resurrected for us. It's alive and it's moving in our hearts and in our lives. We have our offering baskets. Each week these are designed for us to worship. For us to come and give what God has so faithfully and gracefully given to us. So I invite you this morning to come as the Lord leads and to respond. So with that in mind this morning, you respond as the Lord leads. We're going to come back up in a few minutes. I'm going to pray over our youth. We'll take a few minutes and worship and just allow those to respond.